Do you feel equipped to disciple your children? In today's hostile culture, you need a strategy for parenting. The Disciple Making Parent Ministry seeks to equip parents and churches to pass the gospel to their children, and they want to help you raise strong disciples of Jesus Christ who can stand firm in today's culture. Their book, The Disciple Making Parent, has been endorsed by Albert Moeller and Tim Challies. You can get a copy of the audiobook absolutely free. Simply visit thedisciplemakingparent.com slash free audiobook to get access. That's thedisciplemakingparent.com slash free audiobook. Anchored Hope provides practical help to those hurting by anchoring their hope in Jesus and helping others gain a better understanding of His promises. We offer reputable biblical counsel to those suffering or experiencing difficult seasons. Our counselors are highly trained and bring a vast experience in addressing the various issues of life. To meet with a counselor, visit anchoredhope.co to find a counselor that fits your needs and schedule an appointment today. Today on This Versus That, we have my friend Melissa Kruger. Melissa has just a few things going on. She serves as Vice President of Discipleship Programming at the Gospel Coalition. She's the author of many books, including Walking with God in a Season of Motherhood. Her husband, Mike, is the president of the Reformed Theological Seminary, and they have three children. She writes at Wits End, hosted by the Gospel Coalition. In today's conversation, we talk with Melissa about control versus discipleship and parenting. Man, this was a good one for me, especially helpful for me in my current season of parenting. I was really encouraged and helped by the end of this conversation and continue to think about it probably every day since we've had this talk. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Here it is. For our topic today, it's control versus discipleship, particularly in parenting. I think all three of us are in different parenting stages. So my youngest is six. My oldest is about to be 12 in two months, and I'm feeling it deeply. I have three girls. So there's that. Brian, your kids are what? My youngest is 15. My oldest is 21. Girl, boy, boy. So we're similar. We're really similar because my oldest is 22 and my youngest is 16. So we're on. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're right there together. So really, this is. This whole podcast is going to be a counseling session for me. So let's just go ahead and put that out there. We had a huge meltdown at our house last night at 10 o'clock at night. So that's not, I wouldn't say like the norm, but just, you know, it happened the day before we're going to record this. So here we are. (laughs) But the whole idea of controlling and parenting versus discipleship and parenting is obviously something that every parent is dealing with, whether they are cognitively aware of it or not. Um, so even as we're processing this, Melissa, how would you maybe even, can you simply define the difference between those two things? How do we even determine the difference between control and discipleship? Yeah, I think really simplistically, control is my benefit as a parent. Discipleship mm-hmm. is my child's benefit as a human. So I, I can look at a person and say, it's good to be a disciplined person. Like that's a healthy way to be. No one plays a beautiful piano without a lot of discipline in their life. You know, to, to get to be an expert at anything, we need discipline. So when we look at discipline, it's for the beauty of a person's life to unfold in all of its capacity. When we look at control, it's all about the parent's desires and wants. 
And so it's ultimately self-centered, whereas discipleship is, I would say, God-focused, child-centered. So not child-centered in whatever the child wants, but Mm -hmm. whatever God is making this child to be, I'm going to come alongside and point them in a Godward focus. So that sounds really pretty. I'm pretty sure that I messed that up last night. (laughs) I I think one of the hardest things is I want what's good for her, right? I, I want what's best for her. The conclusion of that is if 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 she gets what's best for her, it's also good for me because it maybe makes my life easier or maybe it makes our life look prettier or maybe it means that I get to be asleep at 10 o'clock at night and not working on a research paper that should have been done for the last four weeks, right? So I'm wanting to teach her not to procrastinate and to listen and obey because we've asked her a million times to, you know, whatever. So those desires, though, and the expectations How do we manage what's good and what's right versus the reality of, and now it's 10 o'clock at night and you got to get this done. And how do you, how do you manage that? (laughs) Yeah, I I think here's the difference in that analogy, especially because I've had the exact same situation. Mm -hmm. I think discipline is proactive, not just reactive. So the discipline Mm -hmm. conversation about that happens not at 10 p.m. at night. The controlling conversation would be angry yelling. I've told you five times not to do this. I've warned you about at 10 p.m. That is exactly the, I'm not, I'm, I have, I'm not getting personal. At 10 p.m. It's fine. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. I'll repent later. I'm okay with that. At 10 p.m., what that child needs is the discipline that they're going to be taught when a parent responds with, hey, I'm here for you right now. What can I do to help make the tailspin of your mm. life right now better? That's actually a parent's heart being disciplined. Um, mm-hmm. My heart interacting with my want right now at 10 p.m., I can tell you right now is to go to bed. 100%. Mm-hmm. Am I going to die to my desire so that I can live for my child? I can talk with her later about her homework patterns and, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's consequences. But I don't think our consequence should ever be removal of warmth or affection for our team. And so I think that that's a big difference. Whereas control says, I'm going to remove my affection and warmth from you as punishment to get you to do what I want. And it's really at the, at the end of it, emotional manipulation mm. versus discipline says, I'm going to die to myself to love you. I'm always going to be here for you, but we are going to have consequences, but it's never going to be the consequence of my removal of my affections or love for you. Mm. Mm, that's good. So I automatically think, because in that tension, you, you are wanting what's good. You're wanting them to recognize, okay, I messed up here and this is the consequences of, of what I did to mess up. I think there's a fear of if we don't bring that to light in that moment, even if we're not wanting to be harsh, if we're not really clear that these are the consequences for what you've done. It, for me personally, it's hard to not remove the warmth but be really clear about those consequences. Uh, and so I think for me personally, even that struggle is I don't want to remove my warmth. I love her. <laughs> Obviously, I want what's best for her. What's best for her is that warmth. So it's almost like a distinction between understanding what is actually best for them in that moment. That's right. And I think one huge shift for us all as parents is when they were two, they needed the immediate response, right? I mean, because if you talk about to the two-year-old, in two days about their bad attitude. They're like, what are you talking about? I've had that bad attitude now five more times since then. 
with teenagers, yeah, I think there's this big shift. Look, we all have bad days. And I'll be honest, the best time to call me out on my bad day is not maybe in the moment. <laughs> so I would, you know, like if my husband, yeah, if I walk in, I'm snappy about something and maybe I didn't sleep well the night before or whatever. Now he can talk to me all day long about the fact that I need to get to bed earlier and that would help me. So I wouldn't be snapping at him at 5 p.m. I don't want or, or desire that lecture while I'm cooking dinner. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, as a human. So I think the more we start seeing the humanity in our kids, that's part of the discipline versus the control. So if, yeah, if I take it back to my marriage, nobody would want a husband like, yeah, don't talk to me that way. Like that's what control would look like. Faithful respect and love in a marriage would look like, hey, you know, this past week, you've seemed really kind of on edge. Can you want to talk about what's going on? Yeah, like I want to have that conversation with you or whatever. And I think the same, our kids as they're aging need those same conversations. And that's what discipleship, I think, looks like in the teen years versus the younger years. It's very different. And so I think it's really hard as parents to make that shift because there is an age appropriateness to, yeah, you don't really get to choose that you're getting in your car seat today. I'm going to snap you into this sucker because basically the law tells me you have to be in versus <laughs> how do we how do we help their heart to start to love what is right and choose what is good? That's what's happening in the teen years. And that's totally different conversation than, hey, I've got to move you from point A to point B right now. So you're going to get in this car seat. Mm. There's no choice there. And so younger years are forced control for all of us because we have to. And that in that sense, I think as a movie of the teen years is a beautiful opportunity for discipleship in new ways. But it's hard as a parent to make that show. So, Melissa, in those areas where we do have a certain amount of control, and like you said, like that's that lessens as they get older, right? And when they're younger, we pretty much, you know, dictate most of what happens in their day, even even as we are showering them with affection and love as they get older, they're, they're gaining more freedom. There's still some things, right? Now the control might look like, well, you can use the car at this time. You cannot use the car at that time. And because I own the car, I'm in control of that decision. But how do you know when that kind of control that, that sometimes is just a function of life, right? It's just a, a reality, you know, just if you go to work, there's certain ways in which there's an authority over you're going to have control over what your day looks like. How do you know when it shifted from that to this has become a sinful desire of a controlling nature toward you? Yeah. I mean, one, I think it's something we have to look inside our own heart. I think it's, it, yeah, it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that on someone else. Yeah. It, I think it's really tempting to be like, that's a controlling parent over there. And you don't know that parent. So one, it's a really good question to ask ourselves versus it's real easy to see other controlling parents. <laughs> things sometimes as we look outside. And so I think the question I always have to ask myself, am I doing this for me? I mean, is it selfish? Like, could I give up the car today so that my teen could do X, Y, or Z? Would that be the right thing to do? And I, I think our teens can really understand a lot more than we give them credit for, especially when we have a conversation with them rather than just come at them with the rule hey, you're going to get the car these three hours this week or whatever versus, hey, tell me about your week. What's it going to look like this week? How can we do this well? I I've just found that that does an amazing, that, that has an amazing effect with kids just to feel like they're being allowed to engage in the conversation. And so 
but but I think every one of us has to guard our hearts. I mean, my my bent is normally going to be towards what's best for me. And so I've got to really be prayerful and ask the Lord, how can I love well like you love? That's what I want to model and impress upon my kids and hope that they walk away knowing that mom couldn't always even be around or do things for them, but that mom was willing to sacrifice for them as she could. And I, but still had high expectations of them like that. You know, it's, it's such a it's such a dance. It's not about yeah, it's it's a dance is what I would say. And it's one that can only be done with a lot of prayer and being in the word. And, you know, and I think that's going to change us in those moments. Yeah, it's so true. I think about the times I've found myself frustrated with my kids. So often it's not about some aspect of their character that I want to see them grow in. It's more about my freedom has been disrupted, right? The, my plans for the day just got disrupted because, you know, they didn't tell me about where they needed to be or whatever. And now I'm inconvenienced. And if I'm honest, it's more like I, I just don't want to be inconvenienced right now. Yeah. And, uh, I think, well, sorry, I was just going to say, I have to own my annoyance, my anger, my frustration is mine. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I can't hold them responsible, but my response is mine. And when I've done that, it, it's so convicting. You know, like, I'm just like, uh, no, I want my anger to be because you have not done what I told you to do 10 times. But I realize my anger is mine. And when I can accept that, totally changes how I parent. Because I parent, yeah, I, I can still have expectations. Yeah, your room is a mess. You need to go clean it up and you're not going to do X, Y, or Z until it is. But that's really different than I'm now lecturing you in a really angry tone for 20 minutes. They're really different. Is there ever a scenario where lecturing in an angry tone is good? That's a great question. I kind of always, are, are we asking pragmatically? Because <laughs> I'm trying to think of an instance when that would actually make me change my behavior. Uh-huh. Mm. Well, you, I mean, right. It's God's kindness that brings us to repentance, yeah. not his yeah. wrath. Yeah. But his wrath teaches us a story, right? His wrath teaches us who he is. So it's, I have a lot to learn here. <laughs> it's good. It's really good. I just find my kids have responded so much better. In, in fact, I asked them, I said, why do you still talk to us? It, it, it is a conundrum to me. I have a 22 year old, a 19 year old and a 16 year old. And they, they still talk to us. I'm a chair about it. And they, they like to be around us. And I don't know why. I don't really mean that. And I, I sat my daughter's down there. I said, will you tell me why you still talk to us? And one of the things that they said was, when we messed up, your first response always was to love us. Mm. And, you know, that's not true. Thankfully, thankfully, the Holy Spirit binds these children's memories from all the times we lost it on them. I really do believe that. But I, but I can say, I learned from my parents. I had an instance when I drove the car through the garage door. I was running late to get to work in high school. I backed up, totally ran, forgot to open the garage door, ran into the garage door. And my mom comes down and she goes, go on to work. Go on, just go ahead and go take my car. And when I got home, my dad did not greet me with anything other than a girl, what on earth happened to you today? You know, and just laughed. And he was so gracious. And my parents, I looked back, they totally mm -hmm. covered what had happened. They knew it was an accident. They knew, I, I mean, I was late. So that's on me, but they, I didn't get a lecture. And I, I'll say that left an indelible impression upon me of how do I want to greet my kids when they mess up? And I've never forgotten it. And it was the thing I always hoped to do it in, par in parenting. And I think it really matters with our kids. Our response when they make mistakes, whether it's 
you know, a late homework assignment or driving through a garage door, you know, I think it really matters. And I, I felt it, I experienced that grace and it, it was, it, it still means something to me when I think about my parents. That's sweet. It's interesting. I think the transitions that you were talking about earlier, it's almost like we can forget that they're getting older and you forget to transition. And in those younger years, so I still have a six-year-old and eight-year-old, and we are infiltrating every conversation with Jesus and the gospel and, you know, yes, no, here's why it's the, you know, we're sharing the gospel with them all the time. Not the whole, you know, not the full on, you know, but just snippets of here's why we do this or here's why we repent or here's why that's not good. You know, all of these little bitty things all of the time. As you transition to that older, I mean, if I, if last night I'd said, and now here's the gospel. <laughs> well, I probably need to do that for myself. But that wouldn't obviously have made an impact on her. As kids get older and you're looking at that control versus discipleship, you want them to love Jesus, right? You want them to to love what's good and right and true. You want them to love the Bible. You want them to love truth. So that transition, how do you make, I, there's so much emphasis on, oh my goodness, and so many great resources now that, you know, didn't even exist five years ago about, you know, creating these little Jesus loving theologians that know stuff, that know so much stuff. How do you transition from that to this growing kid that's going to have their own relationship with Jesus, where if you're doing it the same way you were doing it when they were six, it's actually, it could be more destructive if you don't. Mm figure that transition out? That's a big question. So I guess the question is, how would you discern or even describe that transition from teaching the basics that matter so much as little kids to, okay, now we're in middle school and we're going to D-Now retreats and we're going to church camp and your youth group without me, right? And now you, maybe you're doing your quiet time on your own or whatever that looks like. Um, yeah. How would you describe that transition? How do you know to make that transition? Yeah, it totally snuck up on me. I, I was not prepared for it. Meaning in my head, I think, I, you know, that you're going to parent teens differently than two-year-olds, but you're just in your habits, right? I mean, I was just in the habits of, oh, this is how we do things and this is how we do things. I think it is sneaky and it's it's right at like 11 and 12. And and what's sneaky about it is they're not looking like teen. I mean, some some 12 year olds do good grief. Some 12 year olds can like dunk a basketball. I mean, it's crazy how different people grow at different rates. But a lot of times they're not really yours in your mind. They're still your little baby. Mm-hmm. You know, that's right. And so, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really this tough thing. And I noticed it with my daughter. I was bugged one day with my oldest because she was standing. We were standing in the cul-de-sac as a group of moms and she was wanting to talk to us. And the kids were all running their bikey things and doing all these mm-hmm. kitty things. And in my heart, I, I was kind of like shooing her away. Like, I wanted her to go play so I could have adult conversation. Again, this gets down to my selfishness. And I, I suddenly realized here she is trying to participate with the adults and I'm shooing her away. And in my, it hit me. Is this why kids start doing adult things away from their parents? Because we have yeah. shooed them away because we want our adult time. And it really convicted me. And so I started rather trying to invite her into my conversations with my adult friends just so she could start to see what adult faith looks like. Here it is. She wants to participate and I've been shooing her away to play with the kids because I don't want her involved. And so it really hit me that we can start inviting them into these spaces so that they can start seeing 
other adults and what their faith looks like. It doesn't have to be youth group. I can remember bringing them to, we have, we had a women's prayer team and my daughter came along and helped pray for women in the church. And she got to be a part of that experience and a part of that prayer time. So I think it's a, a time where rather than doing our ministry lives away from them, we can start bringing them along in some of those things. And that's really exciting, but it took me a time to transition that. I was so used to kids space here, women's space here. And I hadn't yet let her enter into that women's space, but it was definitely a transition. I feel like I was slow to catch on to. Well, I'm slow to catch on to a lot of things. So here we are. (laughs) Here we are. One of the things too, that as we're developing and discipling them into that transition, and I, I won't hoard the conversation after this, I'll let you guys talk too, but what are as you're transitioning them to love the Bible, to love being a part and hearing from God's word, what are some ways that you've found to help older kids want to read their Bible? So you obviously demonstrate that for them, right? They see you reading the Bible or they see you studying or, you know, my kids are like, do you have a counseling session right now? Or is this just a regular meeting? They know. They're like, in fact, my oldest one time, she was little. She said, I'm going to be the best counselor ever. I said, really? Why? She goes, because I'm here all the time at the, at the counseling office. I was like, oh, okay. I didn't know that's all it took. So we obviously demonstrate that for them. We demonstrate how we want them to be. But how would you say we encourage that, like that true desire, that that independent desire, if you will? Yeah, it's not so much. And I mean, if they're, we're going to church. They see we're a ministry family. They see us do ministry all the time. So they're seeing that, but developing a love, a a love on their own apart from their parents. What are the best ways you found to encourage them towards that? Yeah, I think in my own life, I would say I have prayed a lot because just like, you know, we can't make our kids fall in love with, you know, that family that we love so much who has a kid the same age and we like, oh, they should get married one day or whatever. We can't, you know, we recognize (laughs) we can't make them fall in love. I think I reckon, I I mean, just Mm. the truth of the scripture, I can only do so much. I can introduce them to a person who I think will change their life, which is the person of Jesus and through the word. And I can continually talk about what faith has meant to me. But it is it is impossible for me to create an affection for the Lord in them. And I found a lot of freedom in that as a parent. I, it's made me a much more prayerful parent because I just, I recognize I am able to teach them the word. I am not able to grow their affection for the word. And so knowing what is mine to do, the Lord has said, teach these commandments to your children. I can do that faithfully, but I have to just pray that he would allow the word to go down in their heart and make it lovely to them. And, you know, I I wasn't the parent who was overly purposeful. I'll I'll fully admit that. Like, I never sat down and said, here's how you have a quiet time. But you know what's funny? Every one of my kids started studying the Bible on their own. Like, just seeing Mm -hmm. their parents do this regularly. In fact, my son, I used to find him like, I feel like he was sneaking the Bible. He, yeah, he didn't, as long as like he didn't want me in there, he's reading it. Yeah, and I was laughing. I'd come in and be like, what you doing? Just reading my Bible, you know, whatever. And it just was so interesting to me. We didn't put a lot of pressure on them to like, hey, you need to have a 20-minute time with the Lord and read your Bible and then tell us what you learned. I just, I'm, I, yeah, I just, I was not, I, I almost think that would fall in that controlling category. Like, this is what it should look like for you. You know, my husband and I spend time in the Word very differently. 
we're very different in how we approach our time with the Lord. And if I spent all my time trying to control how he's spending time with the Lord and it needed to look like how I'm spending time with the Lord, that's going to make everyone miserable. And so I made sure my kids had Bibles. I tried to give them resources that would help them, but I prayed a lot. And I, I'll say that's probably the best thing we can do as parents and, and make sure they have a- access to the Bible. I mean, that's kind of simple. Most of our homes have probably like 20 Bibles that no one reads in them, according to Barna surveys. So I mean, so I think they're there, but I think they have to see us actually going to the word ourselves before they're ever going to think they need to do that. Yeah, that's so true. You know, it's, that kind of segues into the the next thing I wanted to ask you, Melissa, which is when, when we when we work with our counselors, we talk a lot about the importance of like not relating to those they meet with on a strictly like professional to client type of relationship, but to, you know, to borrow the language of Paul Tripp, you know, where people in need of change, helping people in need of change. And when I meet with pastors, we talk a lot about there's the, this importance of like, if you lose sight of the fact that you're a sheep, you're going to become harsh and domineering as a shepherd. And I, I think I think your husband actually wrote a book about that recently. And so I, I want to kind of bring that principle into parenting. It seems like if we lose sight of the fact that we are first children in the presence of God, needy, dependent, helpless, ultimately, apart from his grace, that it's going to affect the way we parent. Can you speak a little bit to that, like the importance of pursuing childlikeness as a parent and what that even looks like once you reach at least the perception of I've, I can accomplish and do some things in life and I can make some things happen. How do you hold on to that sense of, as I relate to my children, first and foremost, I'm a needy child in God's presence. And how does that impact the way we parent them? That's such a good question. For me, positionally, it's how I view our circumstances to begin with. Do I view my child as something to get fixed or or do I view this? This is God's classroom for me to know him better today. So whatever about my child might be the presenting issue is not just about the child. It's about me and what the Lord's working in on me. And so maybe he sees my my issues with impatience or control and I'm trying to walk apart from the spirit. I'm trying to do it my own strength. And the, the presenting issue, whatever it may be with my child, is really how the Lord's trying to wake me up to the ways I'm not depending upon him in my life and trying to live independently of my need of him. I mean, it, nothing like parenting has reminded me of my own need of grace. And I don't mm. want grace. Do you know, I mean, this is the real problem in my heart. I think I have walked with Jesus long enough that I I should be really past this by now. <laughs> this is the sad state I find myself on. Rather than believing the truths of the gospel that say, no, I am going to always need the grace of God. I, You know, mm-hmm. and so that means, you know, I've walked with Jesus now for 35 years and I'm just like, I'm embarrassed to keep coming back to him, a needy beggar. And then each time it's like, he just says, this is what, this is what I do. This is what I'm here for. And when I can learn that and when I can see that, it makes me infinitely more patient toward my children because I realize how often I'm like the unmerciful servant. You know, I am this person who's been forgiven for 35 years over and over and over and over again, all these different things as I've walked with Christ. As a, and I have the Holy Spirit in me. Yeah, for all those years of walking with the Lord. And then I look at this child who may or may not be a Christian. You know, we don't really know sometimes where our kids are. And I am expecting perfect obedience the first time from them, you know, and completely angry and upset, kind of like that unmerciful servant who took the servant who only owed them like a day's wage and shakes them and say, pay me today. How dare you not obey me? When I 
this this beggar of grace have needed so much more grace from the Lord than they will ever need from me. And yet so often we're the unmerciful servant to our own children. Rather, and, and I think there's some wrong, there's a right desire for first-time obedience of the Christian life. I understand what people mean by that. But there can be some really wrong ex- wrong expectation of what that would mean in, in our lives. Because I finally had to reckon with myself. I'm expecting first-time obedience from my child, and I'm not often very giving God first-time obedience. Mm. You know, <laughs> so it, it's not wrong to have expectations, but we have to have the right expectation that our child's always going to make mistakes and struggle just like we do. Just yet, yeah, Just that kind of understanding place that we come from. So the more I'm aware of my own need of grace, the more I'm really sitting before the Lord in repentance and confession about my stuff, the more I'm going to enter in compassionately with them, I think. But, you know, I really think, again, this takes us being before the Lord confessing as parents so that we can come in as a beloved child, just like we want to treat them as beloved children, but remembering his grace really is enough and his grace covers us. We don't have to be afraid to confess because his grace is big enough for that. And when we feel that love from the Father and that acceptance from the Father, we're going to give that to our children. Not an acceptance of sin, not a delight in sin, but an acceptance that they are a fellow meter of grace, just like we are. And it's just a different positional place to come in rather than I'm here and you're underneath me and rather, yeah, I'm going to make mistakes too. I think our kids seeing that actually teach them, teaches them what do we do when we fail? We, we, we so often only teach people how to succeed. My son once looked at me and said, why is all the teaching always on how to be a leader? Whoever teaches people how to be a follower. And I think the same thing is true in the Christian life. We, we teach people how to succeed, but do we ever really teach them how to fail? Like, what, what does the Bible tell us to do when we make a mistake? And I think we lead in that way by our example. You know, we, we show them what it means to confess. We show them what it means to repent. We show them what it means to apologize. And by God's grace, we show them what it means to walk in the freedom of the Spirit and change. And hopefully, that's how we come in side by side in our humanity, even though positionally we've been given authority over them as parents. But, you know, so it's complex. But hopefully they can learn from that. That's so good. I mean, we, you're right. We don't, we fail all the time and we never talk about it or we never talk about how to do that in a way that's redemptive and, and, and grows us more into the likeness of Christ. We just think, well, that, that was a loss. That was, that was wasted time. And, and yeah, and our, our kids, you know, they feel that right. To be a child is to not have things figured out. And, and I think when we can say, you know what, there's a whole lot I don't have figured out. There's in, in a sense, it's, we're just showing them what it looks like to do that. And we, we may be a few steps down the road from them, but we're really on the same journey. Yeah. Hopefully we've grown the ability to repent faster. Because so often, yeah, I'm tempted to cover my son with my kid's mistake rather than with the blood of Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like I want to cover, oh, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gotten angry if you hadn't have done that. Rather than say, no, I got angry and I, this is why I need Christ. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have done whatever you did. Yeah, we both need Jesus in this moment. And it just changes the conversations from, you know, because I think kids really do absorb. I think in their hearts, they already think everything is their fault. You'll talk to kids of divorce and they think somehow the divorce was their fault. Mm. You talk to kids who are, are abused, they'll think somehow the abuse is their fault. Yeah. And so when mom yells at them, they think somehow it was their fault. Ooh, that's good. Well, I'm pretty sure I aired out my laundry earlier. <laughs> so, <laughs> Brian, I think we do share. I just shared earlier about 
My failing. You know, even as you're talking, I can see the juxtaposition, the control versus discipleship. It's really what are we controlled by? Are we controlled by fear? Are we controlled by an easy life? Are we controlled by whatever it is that we're actually lusting versus being controlled by that love for Christ? And it really, we complicate it, or at least I do, it feels like, trying to figure out what to do right when the simple question to ask myself is, what am I actually being controlled by in this morning, this moment? Am I being controlled by this desire to deeply love Christ and please him above all else? Or am I being controlled by wanting X, Y, Z? And when I can fill in the blank to the X, Y, Z behind that is, okay, well, why do you really want that? Well, if I get what I want in this moment, then I feel really good about myself or mm-hmm. my life gets easier or, you know, I, I get eight hours of sleep or whatever that might look like. So I think there's a, that, that there's a simplicity in asking, even the parent asking ourselves, okay, what am I being controlled by? What, because when we, even when we look at Jesus and we see how he responded to his disciples, his discipleship, he's always being controlled by his love for the father and his intimacy and relationship with the father. And out of that flows the discipleship of everyone who was following him, which was always perfect. <laughs> it was always on point. So I, I think for me, when I, even as hearing you share, Melissa, and Brian ask those questions, it's what am I being controlled by? That's good. Melissa, something you said earlier just made me think about the, those little moments that you talked about how your kids still enjoy talking to you and hanging out with you. I think the one of the things I've noticed is as our kids have gotten older, the more I appreciate those little moments that felt maybe ordinary mundane when they were younger but now that they're older and they don't have to do these things it really means a lot for instance just last night i was i had to run to walgreens to get something and i asked our 19 year old son do you want to go with me he's like yeah like he had no no purpose in going other than just to hang out and ride in the car and like it the older our kids get the more i just love the fact that they want to run to the pharmacy with me or the grocery store or just to kind of be present in those very ordinary moments. And it's those are things I think to be just to be thankful for and to say, Lord, what a what a gift that I get to be with my child in this ordinary moment. It might not be just massive, deep discipleship happening, but it is a moment of connection. And and he had a choice to do to, to just be on his computer or to do something different. And he chose to come with me. And what an amazing gift that is. I, I think you're also keen in our really important thing. You wanted him to come to you. Mm. And I think kids really do pick up on how much do we want them around? Like, do we sigh when they enter the room? Like, how awful. You know, when you think about it, like, I think sometimes relationship is broken more by the sigh than the scream. Like, oh, I've got to actually break away from my computer to look at you. You know, whereas your invitation to him to say, hey, you want to come with me? Like you wanted him to come along. It actually says a lot to our teens too. And this is what I was saying earlier about, I was kind of shooing my daughter away. And I realized these are the years to bring them along. Like to say, I, I want to be around you. I want you in my life. And you know, I'm going to go through, I told one of my children, well, he'll, he'll, I mean, I tell them, it's my son. I have one. So he gets outed every time. My daughter's, I can hide in stories, but my son, I can't. You know, I mean, he, I feel like he spoke grunt to me for a few years in there. And yeah, I think that's kind of normal. How you doing? Yeah. I mean, all I get is grunt, but you, know, you just, and, and I would laughingly say, I do not speak grunt. Can you please form that into some words or whatever? Like we just try to make it fun during, during those years. But there's something about them. I think that we say, we want to be around you. Everybody's worried about social media and phones and all of these things and what it's doing. And sometimes I really believe if we can create a family unit 
where real community is happening, our kids don't want to turn to the phone in the same way. I actually believe by giving them something better, they want fake stuff less. Mm. And, you know, just by saying, hey, I'm here because I love you and I want to be around you. It's just such a gift to kids today. I watch teenagers and I just think a lot of them do not have any adults interested in them as people. They might be interested in control. Mm. Yeah, like I, I was a, I was a high school teacher in my other life is what sometimes I say. And I, I remember watching teens and how much they could go through their whole day in high school and shuffle from classroom to classroom and have no teacher actually ask them, how are you doing today? They would be infused with information. Let me tell you math. Let me tell you science. Let me tell you history. But no one who actually said, hey, I'm glad you're here today. And it's amazing the power of just saying, I'm glad, I'm glad you're here and what that can do for our teens. What are some ways that the church can also embody that kind of community for teens? I'm thinking apart from, obviously there are things you can do programmatically, you know, youth group and things like that, but just what are ways that the church can embody that sense of, hey, you belong here, and also coming alongside of parents as as parents seek to to parent their kids in a, in a gospel-centered way. Yeah, it's so different for every kid what belonging looks like, but I do I do think having spaces where teens can enter into adult spaces is really important. Our church used to do some adult Sunday school classes that we had times where teens came as well. And so they got to see all of that interaction. They they were in the room with the adults. It wasn't like they were in the, you know, because often teens don't want to be, well, I'll I'll say this. I think we act like teens don't want to be around the adults where I'm not sure that's true. So I think the more we can kind of invite them into some of those learning spaces, because, you know, I look at what teenagers are learning in high school. Yeah, they're learning physics. They're learning calculus. They're, they can study Augustine. You know, why do we have to, mm-hmm. in some sense, dumb down Christianity to make it feel like that's it's right. palatable to them? They, they're, they're smart kids. They can come into these classes. And so I think it might them along. But I also really think, it again, Yeah, like my son and I connect over gardening because we like to both be outside talking about the trees and the corn he's planting and the stuff I'm planting, you know, and that's where we connect. And so I think having, it might be in the nursery, it might be on a work day at the church, just expecting teens and inviting them to come along. Different teens are going to connect with people in different ways. And so I think the more as adults, we can have eyes to say, hey, how can we bring teens into this space, not just create space for teens. I think that allows them to feel connected to the body actually more than just kind of psyching them off into teen ministry, Mm. but letting them interact with the body. I think about the 20 years that I served as a pastor and the the people who formed relationships with my kids were the people who seemed to like notice them as people and not simply as the pastor's kid, right? That where they could Kind of remove that lens of your, I know you because you're attached to this person who's kind of at the center of the life of our church, but to say, actually, you're important as an individual and I want to know you. And hey, you might not think the same as your dad on everything. And that's okay. I want to know. And it, those are the people that my kids felt connected to and felt like they were seen and known and loved by. And and it just it highlighted the importance of what you were saying about, it. like, I think when someone just says it matters that you're here. It matters to me that uh, like you're an important part of this, whether this family unit or this church family unit, that, that really goes a long way, I think, in forming their identity. Yeah. One study I read recently said for teens to attend one religious service a week, this was a secular study, one religious service a week, they had a 20% less likelihood of being depressed, anxious, 
feeling feelings of loneliness just from going to a yeah to a service. And in my head, I was thinking, isn't it isn't it amazing secularly, like in the secular world, if we heard a twenty percent increase in some of these statistics, if it was a drug, we'd be passing it out like candy. Like, oh, you should take this. You should take this. It's amazing what community of the church can do. Like sometimes I, I say to people, the basics of the Christian faith are are a blessing. The word and prayer and church, these these things that we think we have to force our kid to, they're actually a blessing. It's like telling your kid to eat their vegetables. This is a blessing for their soul. And I do think the life of the church for kids who have grown up in the church, and not to say you can't start when your kid's 11 or 12, you can, but the blessing of those kids who have been there all along and have these relationships, it's just really sweet for them to get to see. And that's a, that's a gift to our kids. And I've watched, I don't know how you thought as your kids have gone off to college, they just can't imagine a Sunday not in church. Yeah. And so that's, and so immediately when they go off, they have these communities. My daughter was in a secular school here, you know, in North Carolina and she, all during COVID. And so her whole housemates got COVID and a family from the church brought them all meals while they had COVID. Yeah. And here I was like, I was far away, couldn't bring meals, but the church, the church isn't far away. And so it's, it's such a blessing for our kids when they can grow up in the church. Well, I could talk a lot about this. I think this is such a helpful thing. And I love hearing your wisdom ahead of me. And tell us a little bit about the book that you're writing right now. Can you do that? Yeah, I can. I'm glad to. It's almost finished. So I'm really glad to talk about it. It's like giving birth. Like it's almost out. (laughs) I am writing a book called Parenting with Hope. Raising Teens for Christ in a Secular Age. And so one of the things I feel like I see is, and I don't know if you all see this, is just a ton of parental angst. We maybe, maybe, maybe it's the control thing that we're talking about here, control versus discipleship. And we feel the need to control every area of their life. And I read a really powerful book. It was a secular book called The Price of Privilege a few years ago. And one thing she talked about was we basically feel the pressure as parents today to curate our children. So rather than relate to our children, they're curated beings. And so they have to play the right sport, play the right instrument, go to the right Ivy League college. And, and you know, and this is clearly a thing because people paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to get their kids into Ivy League schools and go to jail for it. Like, I mean, this is... <laughs> You know, she's speaking to a, a, a real thing out there that people are doing. Now. I think we have to admit as Christians, parents, we're not untouched by that culturally. Yeah, there are these cultural idols of success, of scholarship, of achievement, of sports and activities that we are battling as parents just as much as our counterparts are. And so that's mm-hmm. really what the book we, we talk about the basics, word, prayer, church, but we talk about the battle and the battle is in our team, but maybe our own idolatry. And then the book finishes with three chapters on how do we create a hem of blessing? So what does it look like to really create a hem of grace during the teen years where faith can flourish? Not that we can make that faith flourish, but how do we create an environment that is gospel-centered as we parent? So that's the hope. My, my real hope is that we just keep, as parents, looking to Christ for our hope, not our teen's performance, not our child's performance, but that we set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed with Christ, not how our kids turn out. And that's so hard as parents, you know, we get yeah, to mm. miss that battle. That's 
Great. Well, I can't wait to read the book. I have no doubt that as a dry sponge sits in water and fills up, that, that it will be like that for all the readers. But what are some of your favorite resources on the topic of discipleship and parenting in all the different stages? What are some of the best things that you have taken in yourself? That's a great question. You could recommend. Yeah. I love Paul Tripp's 14 Principles, Gospel Principles. That one. Have y'all read that? Mm -hmm. I really like, I, I read it a while ago. So, you know, the brain is fuzzy, but I remember thinking, oh, this is, this is good. I really resonated with it. I, I will admit though, I don't find much on the teen years and I understand why now after writing a book. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible because I have, I mean, I, I tell you, I am walking with a lot of friends who have a lot of really, really hard things going on. I have friends whose kids are cutting. I have friends whose kids have eating disorders. I have friends whose kids are addicted to pornography. I, like the, the list of what you're facing in the teen years feels so much longer than the toddler years. It makes sense why all the parenting books are for two-year-olds because toddlers, right. you know, it, it, you can talk about it. And so parenting in the teen years is, is a lot more difficult, I think, to find good resources mm -hmm. on. And I, I will always say, I think our best resources are older saints in our churches. Mm. And finding, I, I, here's what I always say. My mom told me this as a teacher. My mom was a teacher. And she said, when you go and you, to your first teaching job, Melissa, you're going to be tempted to find the other teacher whose class is completely out of control like yours and get advice from them. She was like, don't go to them for advice. They're just as lost as you are. She's like, look for the teacher who somehow seems to take 150 students every year and manage them and teach them with joy. Like, look for that teacher and then go ask her what she's doing. Because the reality is no one gets 150 students who are all delight. But somehow that teacher is managing those kids. And I think it's really good to go talk to, to older, older parents who really like to be around their kids still and just ask questions just say what what did y'all what 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 was going on in your home they probably have no idea what they were doing but you can probably glean a lot from asking people who still really like to be around their kids and you could say hey they just got lucky they had easy kids i, I mean sure I, I think that gets harder and harder the more kids they have to to, to start thinking that because we all know every kid's so different and so often there are hidden parenting principles that are happening in those homes that can really create a warm environment. But honestly, some of the best stuff I learned was from secular resources. I was an ed major in teenage development. And there's good stuff out there. You know, it's it's not, it, it's it's rooted in biblical truth. It's common grace insights, but just on the differences of permissive, authoritarian, and authoritative homes, that's mm. really good stuff that you can Google what's the difference between permissive, authoritative, and authoritarian homes, and you will find the best results tend to come from authoritative homes. And it's just, it's just study after study shows and, and what those homes look like. And I think those are basically gospel-centered homes, but it's, I mean, that, that type of research is everywhere that you can just, I think there's a lot of really good stuff we can glean from, you know, common grace insights from people who have studied teen development. That's really helpful. Yeah. And it's important to note that authoritative does not equal control. Yes. Yes. That's a helpful. I actually call it a shepherd parent. I think that's a, authority, authoritative and authoritarian. Mm -hmm. They're so close that people get them, you know, confused. I think, I think secular people who wrote these books didn't have the word shepherd. That wouldn't be a word they would use. But I think that's the word in the Christian world that we would probably all think of like a shepherd parent, a shepherd pastor. 
you know, someone who's mm. shepherding souls versus which a shepherd does herd them, does lead them, does guide them, isn't the permissive, isn't letting them run off. The shepherd goes after the one who's lost. You know, mm. I mean, the shepherd is is herding the sheep, but the shepherd is not beating them into submission. You know, that's such an important <laughs> distinction. Yeah. yeah. Well, I am super encouraged, Melissa. Thank you for joining us. And we know that God finishes the work that he started in all of us and in our children. And so I'm clinging to that hope as I seek to learn how to parent and grow and what it means to be a discipling mom at all ages. So thank you for being a part of our new podcast. I liked it here going off. I guess I'm not moving around enough. Do a jig. Maybe that would help. We're not. It's That's time. We're done. We're done. I guess we're done. I would be remiss if I didn't mention that at Anchored Hope, we have people who are counseling teens in particular uh, and do an excellent job. We have a 30-minute adolescent option, and we've seen great feedback and testimonies of just our counselors being a part of those teens' lives. So it's really fun to hear about and to be able to provide that resource to people. So thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Thanks so much, Melissa. Great to have you. You've been listening to This Versus That, a podcast of Anchored Hope Virtual Counseling. To learn more about this episode or our ministry at Anchored Hope, visit anchoredhope.co. Are you spending too much time managing your website, designing graphics, or trying to figure out how to grow your digital platform? Maybe you know you should be focusing on these things, but you just don't have the time. At Marketeering, we believe that no brand should lack the creative tools needed to grow and thrive. We can help you uncover what makes your brand unique and develop a strategy for helping your brand stand out from the rest. Right now, we're offering a special rate to get started that's exclusively for this versus that listeners. Visit marketeering.co and schedule a brand assessment with us and receive 50% off. Just mention this versus that in the contact form.